fellow citizens. Three new political entities emerged on this island in 1922, the Irish Free State, Northern Ireland, and sometimes overlooked, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Two new states materialized. Northern Ireland was not one of them, though many have suggested otherwise, including James Craig, who boasted of a Protestant state in repost to those who had allegedly boasted of a Catholic one. Northern Ireland has never met any formal definition of a state, not Hegel's, not Marx's, not Max Weber's, nor that of any other German eminence, nor has it ever met any standard legal definitions. Legislated through the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, Northern Ireland was neither domestically nor externally sovereign and had never had constituent power. Differently put, it cannot make its constitution on its own. Intermittently, it has been a devolved entity with delegated powers, powers that have been revoked in favor of direct rule and that may be revoked again. In terms, as lawyers say, it has never been a state in a federation. Its powers could always be revoked. Throughout its existence, Northern Ireland has been subject to the overriding sovereignty of the Westminster Parliament, and still is, even though that Parliament repealed Section 75 of the Government of Ireland Act in 1998. The Suspension Act of 2000, passed and implemented without the approval of the Government of Ireland, is a recent illustration of this sovereign override. On April the 30th, 2021, a BBC reporter told us that a panel of historians set up to advise the government on Northern Ireland's centenary has settled on the 3rd of May as the birth date of the state. Admittedly, that must be the sole occasion on which a panel addressing a controversial topic in and over Northern Ireland has made an agreement to time, albeit with three days to go. The panel erred, however, if it thought it was naming the birth date of a state called Northern Ireland. The reporter mentioned that seven other birth dates had been considered. My own writing, with some disposition toward mercy, has considered four plausible birthdays. December the 23rd, 1920, when the Government of Ireland Act was ratified. May the 3rd, 1920, when it entered into force. June the 22nd, 1921, when the Belfast Parliament was opened. And lastly, the occasion unionists are inclined to forget, 8th of December, 1922. That was when the Belfast Parliament voted to secede from the Irish Free State, into which it had been legally put by the treaty signed in 1921. That treaty was not ratified by the King in Parliament until late 1922, after the final draft of the Constitution of the Irish Free State had been ratified. The previous version had been rejected by the British Cabinet as incompatible with the Treaty of 1921, a rejection that made the War of Green against Green, the Irish Civil War, more likely. Any place with four or more birthdays is unlikely to be the subject of an agreed celebration or commemoration, and so it has proved. But one factual observation flows from the fourth birthday. If the people of both jurisdictions vote in future with concurrent majorities to create a sovereign united Ireland, then they would accomplish reunification, not merely unification. 
If Northern Ireland had a constitution before the Good Friday Agreement, it was the Government of Ireland Act, originally drafted to create two devolved parliaments within the Union, with continuing Westminster sovereignty, and with continuing but reduced Irish representation in the House of Commons. The liberal, imperialist, and conservative solution to Irish self-determination was to invent two Irelands, northern and southern, with a geographic insouciance that still rankles, especially if you come from Donegal. Unionist elites decisively shaped the final territorial definition of Northern Ireland, insisting on six counties, thereby betraying their co-ethnics in Donegal, Cavan, and Monaghan. They did not, however, significantly debate or reflect. They did not engage in an act of Machnive on what constitutional forms Northern Ireland should have. In practice, they resented inconvenient deviations from the Westminster mothership and would soon rectify them. No evidence exists of serious reflection within the Ulster Unionist Party of the 1920s regarding what constitutional forms would best win the consent of the newly created political minority in Northern Ireland, the nationalists who saw themselves as part of an all-island majority and the other overlapping minority, cultural Catholics. Rather, the Ulster Unionist Party focused on control, preventing or putting down Republican rebellion, organizing unionists, and disorganizing northern nationalists and Republicans, who were, admittedly, doing a thorough job of disorganizing themselves. Unionist elites did not, uh, excuse me, unionist elites did care about local fiscal burdens and benefits. Throughout the 1920s, Craig worked successfully to increase subsidies from the London Treasury, and thereby to bypass Lloyd George's fiscal provisos. Had he not done so, Northern Ireland might have gone bankrupt in the 1930s, like Newfoundland. The British compromise was to give home rule to those who claimed they did not want it, after they had refused or postponed it for those who had wanted. As it happened, however, unionists preferred local home rule to its alternatives but not home rule within the Irish Free State. They cared about who ruled at home. The Ulster Unionist Party would make Northern Ireland as culturally British as possible. They abolished proportional representation in local government almost immediately to strengthen the case against revisions of the new border. Within the decade, proportional representation was abolished for elections to the Stormont Parliament being built in Belfast's eastern suburbs. Twice, London governments chose not to prevent the abolition of proportional representation. The Ulster Unionist Party deliberately sought to polarize local politics on the national question, curiously called the constitutional question by all sides, thereby making it easier for the party to act as a pan-Protestant alliance of classes and sects. The adversarial politics of the Westminster parliamentary model may be suited to homogeneous societies if two major parties compete for the moderate median voter. But it has always been a deeply unsuited model to places rent by divisions over national, ethnic, and religious questions, as was already apparent as the Union of Great Britain and Ireland began to democratize significantly after 1884. Reverting to winner-takes-all in single-member districts in Belfast helped the Ulster Unionist Party to marginalize Protestant socialists, those who had been deemed rotten prods during the expulsion of Catholics from Belfast's shipyards. 
It also helped keep loyalist ultras generally within the folds of the dominant party. Republicans and Northern nationalists were given no reasons to abandon abstentionism. Among other securities for Southern Protestants, STVPR had been introduced for Irish local government elections in 1920 and was then put into the Government of Ireland Act of that same year. STV would stay in the South, championed by Arthur Griffith and incorporated in both the Constitution of the Irish Free State and its replacement. Subsequent efforts by Fianna Fáil governments to replace STVPR with winner takes all were defeated in referendums in 1959 and 1968. These institutional decisions had consequences. Fianna Fáil, while the largest party, always faced prospects of not being able to form a government. The Ulster Unionist Party did not, though it was constantly anxious that it might lose. It dealt with the anxiety by making losing highly improbable. STVPR was not restored in the North until 1973. In the interim, the Ulster Unionist Party won all general elections held to the Belfast and London parliaments. No alternation in government ever took place. Two prime ministers, Craig and Brooke, served for 20 years each. Death in office may have been the most common means of changing cabinet ministers. There was no incentive to attract Catholic, let alone nationalist votes. The party did not debate Catholic membership until the late 1950s. Abuse of power was plentiful, especially where its exercise would further entrench the party. All the pathologies of the Ulster Unionist Party's dominance were aggravated by the abolition of PR, namely partisan control of the police and its B Special Reserves, gerrymandering, making elections into censuses of the loyal, direct and indirect discrimination against Catholics, nationalists, and Republicans in employment, housing allocation, and the building and siting of infrastructure, in the maintenance of an unreformed local government franchise, and the weakness of parliamentary opposition. Failure to protect the securities they had included in the Home Rule Acts typified Westminster's negligent oversight. Northern Ireland has remarkably been the subject of five major treaties since its creation. The Founding Treaty, amended by the Government of Ireland Act, putting Northern Ireland into the Irish Free State while allowing it to secede back into the UK, subject to two provisos, a boundary commission, which would, it seemed, create a fairer border, and an obligation on Northern Ireland to pay its full fiscal contributions, then known as imperial contributions. Neither proviso was fulfilled. Secondly, the Treaty of 1925 amended the foundational treaty, buried the Boundary Commission and the Council of Ireland, though the latter idea would be resurrected and rejected in the making and defeat of the Sunningdale Agreement in 1973 and 1974. Third, the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985 created the Intergovernmental Conference, pledged the further reform of Northern Ireland in return for Irish security cooperation and incentivized power-sharing devolution. The latter was not agreed, however, until fourth, the British-Irish Agreement of 10th of April 1998, which promised to safeguard and implement the three-stranded power-sharing settlement reached in multi-party talks in Belfast. Last and most recent is the Ireland-Northern Ireland Protocol, an integral part of the UK's withdrawal agreement of 2020 with the European Union, 
intended to preserve the gains of the 1998 agreement. The Government of Ireland was a party to just one of these treaties, that of 1925, but not as a state. The Good Friday or Belfast Agreement, the latter name is preferred by those who emphasize where it was signed rather than the day it was made, addressed how a Northern Ireland government would be composed, at least this side of a reunified Ireland. And it was agreed by double referendums, not just in the North, and negotiated and ratified under the supervision and with the exhortation of the two sovereign governments. Being the subject of five significant international treaties suggests that sustained insecurity describes Northern Ireland's constitutional trajectory, for which many are jointly culpable, not least unionist leaders. Even the place's name has never been fully agreed. Unionists would have preferred to call it Ulster, taking the name of the whole for the larger portion. They lobbied for that name change in 1937 when the name of the Irish state was changed, and in 1949 when the Republic was redeclared. London governments refused the name change, but did not object to the Royal Ulster Constabulary or later to the Ulster Defence Regiment. To this day, most loyalist militia have Ulster in their titles, not Northern Ireland. For traditional Irish nationalists, the place remains the north of Ireland. For traditional Republicans, the six counties. A last measure of Northern Ireland's constitutional insecurity may be taken from Richard Humphrey's very useful edition of key documents called Reconciling Ireland, 50 Years of British-Irish Agreements. His text includes 40 agreements made between 1973 and 2020, but not the recent protocol to which the UK and Ireland are parties, Ireland through the European Union. We may expect further such agreements before future referendums decide the status of Northern Ireland. In the long story of British direct rule between 1972 and 1998 that I cannot examine here, the Government of Ireland Act was progressively amended or extinguished by British governments until it was replaced by the 1998 agreement. Unlike previous power-sharing initiatives, the Good Friday Agreement eventually appeared to stabilize between 27 and 2017 after the St Andrews Agreement led to minor adjustments of its content. For the first time, constitutional arrangements enjoyed legitimacy throughout the island, as well as within and across Northern Ireland. The parties to the 1998 agreement included Republicans as well as Loyalists. They accepted consociational arrangements, that is, power sharing between communities and parties based on the principles of parity, proportionality, autonomy, and veto rights on devolved matters. I have reviewed these in detail elsewhere, generally favorably. However, these arrangements are not constitutionalized as that term is understood elsewhere. They're partly in what the UK calls a constitutional statute, the Northern Ireland Act of 1998, as modified by subsequent legislation, notably the St Andrews Agreement. All that does, however, is to protect the Good Friday Agreement against implied repeal. There are also provisions in the text agreed by the parties in 1998 that are not incorporated into UK domestic law. These include the recognition of the right of the people of Ireland, North and South, respectively, to exercise their right of self-determination to create a sovereign United Ireland or to maintain the Union and to do so without external impediment and not least 
the obligation of rigorous impartiality in administration by the incumbent sovereign government. Lastly, they are protected by two treaties, one between the UK and Ireland, and now one between the EU and the UK. The permanent constitutional trouble, admittedly not the only one, is that Westminster's sovereignty hangs like a sword of Damocles over all these arrangements. No Westminster Parliament can bind its successor. Each, free, each fresh UK government may modify these and any other constitutional arrangements, if it so chooses, provided it can pass the relevant laws. Simply put, a binding treaty with a parliament that allows itself easily to modify or repudiate treaties deeply impairs the UK's capacity to make a credible commitment to foreign governments, including Ireland's. Equally, that same parliament cannot make solemn internal constitutional pledges to nationalists, unionists, or others. What Westminster gives, Westminster may take away by the same means. The constant lobbying of the Westminster government of the day to implement the 1998 agreement, or not, or to implement the protocol, or not, reflects this condition of permanent constitutional insecurity. Perfidious Albion, I like to say, is a constitutional condition, not a national character trait. No anglophobia is required for this diagnosis, or intended. No governing arrangements or platform of rights in any part of the Union is institutionally entrenched against a simple majority in the House of Commons and the Lords, including the Acts of Union, as recently advertised by Justice Adrian Coulton's eloquent essay in constitutional law that was upheld by the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal in March 2022. So long as parliamentary sovereignty remains the UK's Grundnorm, the credible entrenchment of rights and procedures, even when they're sincerely supported by London ministers, cannot be offered to the Scots or the Welsh, let alone the three designations of Northern Irish. And as observed throughout this island, the current Conservative government feels free, in principle, to repudiate, allegedly in a very specific and limited way, treaties which it has very recently signed. Northern Ireland was a constitutional failure before 1998, an example of how the Westminster model may be, may be abused by a dominant party based on a dominant nationality, ethnicity, or religious community. Its replacement by a consociational devolved settlement with institutionalized north-south and east-west relations is a very distinct improvement but that settlement has proven brittle, especially without sustained British and Irish cooperation and oversight. The settlement was not made by and has never been fully owned by leading English conservatives, with the notably honorable exceptions of Christopher Patton and John Major. The fragility of the settlement has been exposed by the Johnson administration's decision to choose a hard exit from the EU for Great Britain, while in bad faith, signing a protocol to address the Brexiteers afterthought, Northern Ireland. Whether the 1998 settlement endures remains to be seen. If it does, it will ease a more benign path towards reunification. The Irish Free State, by contrast to Northern Ireland, was a state and became a free state. Statehood was in its founding title, but Westminster's lawyers sought unsuccessfully to keep it constrained 
by the narrowest construal of the treaty. The domestic sovereignty of the Irish Free State was mostly clear at the outset, albeit constrained by the articles of, of the treaty ratified by Doyle Aaron and the Westminster Parliament in 1922. The Free State immediately had the treaty-making powers of Canada, and by 1923, against the wishes of His Majesty's government, it was recognized by the League of Nations, of which it would become a member in good standing. By 1931, Westminster had renounced the right to legislate for any dominion, the designation through which British drafters of the treaty had hoped to confine the sovereignty of the Irish Free State. Within 15 years, however, most of the constitutional articles, including most of those in the treaty that had been imposed against the first preferences of the Irish negotiators, were gone. Successive constitutional amendments by Coman Nigel, our Fianna Foyle-led governments, were not contested or were acquiesced in by London governments. The Irish of the Irish Free State adopted Bunriacht na Éireann by referendum in 1937. Literally, that is the fundamental or basic law of Ireland, but officially it is translated as the Constitution of Ireland. Unlike the Free State Constitution, the Bunriacht was entirely made in sovereign Ireland and ratified by its sovereign people alone, through their own parliament and by a referendum. It thereby achieved a widespread standing that its predecessor had never attained, because both the treaty and London's rejection of the official first draft of the constitution of the Irish Free State were accompanied by a British threat to renew war. The following year, 1938, Neville Chamberlain's government, on the advice of his senior military officers, relinquished the so-called treaty ports, leaving the government of Ireland fully sovereign over its territory. The so-called economic war was settled at the same time in de Valera's and Ireland's favor. So by 1939, the state named Ireland in the English language had become fully externally sovereign, demonstrated through its subsequent neutrality throughout World War II. In all but name, it had become a republic again, with an elected president described as taking precedence over all other persons in the state. That would be you, Bukhtaran. <laughs> the outstanding features of the treaty, contested by nationalists of all hues, Northern Ireland's existence, was tactically, but not tactfully, addressed in Articles 2 and 3 of the Bunriacht. These claimed the whole island as Ireland's national territory, but confined the jurisdiction of the Oireachtas to the territory of Sarstadt Éireann. Seen as aggressively irredentist by Unionists, these articles were qualified by Article 29 of the Constitution, which obliged Ireland to obey international law and to settle territorial disputes peaceably. They deliberately left open the possibility that Northern Ireland could be transferred to Ireland by an agreement between Great Britain and Ireland without the consent of Northern Ireland's parliament or a majority of its people. After 1937, Irish governments effectively did not recognize Northern Ireland, silently repudiating the agreement of 1925. Irish sovereignty was prioritized ahead of detente with the Northern government. Non-recognition was fully reciprocated by the government of Northern Ireland's cultural and ideological distance from de Valera's Ireland, which it berated for betraying the treaty, one that the Ulster Unionist government had not recognized at the time. We also now know that in June 1940, Craig wrote to Churchill 
recommending that Scottish and Welsh regiments should be sent to topple the regime in Dublin and to install a British military governor. On this occasion, Churchill did not agree with Craig. Mutual non-recognition persisted. The Prime Ministers of Ireland and Northern Ireland did not meet between 1925 and 1965. The UK did not recognize Ireland by its official name until 1998. Ireland did not fully recognize Northern Ireland by its name until it ratified the British-Irish Agreement and modified Articles 2 and 3 in 1999 to specify mutual consent for reunification. Disputes over names and refusing to recognize one another's preferred names feature in the base currency of deep national and ethnic conflict. The constitution of the Irish Free State was replaced for two reasons. One was to complete the implementation of de Valera's document number two, his alternative to the 1921 treaty that had been rejected both by the British and by a majority of his fellow Sinn Féin cabinet members and a majority of the revolutionary Doyle Aaron. The other reason was that the constitution of the Irish Free State had become too British, but not in any monarchical sense. Unexpectedly, each article could be amended by a simple majority of the Oireachtas. That is to say, the Oireachtas became sovereign in the way that the Westminster Parliament is sovereign. Legally, that development was allowed to happen through the exploitation of a badly drafted, albeit misinterpreted, Article 50. What, it is, what is it about articles numbered 50? In that article, the entrenchment of the Constitution had been postponed for eight years, initially to enable minor corrective amendments by ordinary legislation. But it was then extended for 16 years through arguably invalid amendment of the relevant amending provision. Had the planned entrenchment occurred, then a referendum passed by a qualified majority would have been required to ratify constitutional amendments. Legally, the de, the de facto shift to Oireachtas sovereignty was also enabled by a curious court judgment by Judge O'Connor in a case in 1924. The judge held that retrospective legislation validating the military courts that had been used to try militant Republicans should be treated as a constitutional amendment, even though the act in question had not been brought forward explicitly as such. Effectively, this decision returned the Irish Free State to the British judicial doctrine of implied repeal. As a result of this decision and subsequent cases, the Constitution could be amended by ordinary legislation without specifying the provisions to be amended and without even specifying any intention to amend the Constitution. The Command Nagel government also abolished the article enabling a popular initiative to launch a referendum because Fianna Fáil began to mobilize to hold one targeted against the treaty. Despite its eventual failure, the Irish Free State Constitution nevertheless deserves some backward glances of approval, but not because of its unstable compromise between a democratic and republican ethos and British monarchical symbolism, but rather because of its innovative ambitions and its good faith intent to accommodate Irish Protestants and Unionists, including Ulster Protestants. The innovative ambitions included the desire to entrench citizen, not parliamentary sovereignty, by making the people sovereign and by requiring referendums to change the constitution, and the desire to establish judicial review 
to ensure that governments did not breach the people's rights. The accommodationist ethos was present not just in the determination to keep SDVPR as a safeguard for Protestants throughout the island, but in the decision to establish a Senate in which Protestants would be significantly overrepresented, a goal lost when the Senate became party politicized. Last but not least, all of the three internal drafts of the Constitution of the Irish Free State obliged a request from Michael Collins regarding the North. Article 44 of the final constitution had the following provision. The Oireachtas may create subordinate legislatures with such powers as may be decided by law. Collins had wanted a mechanism readily available to incorporate a devolved Northern Ireland within a reunited Irish free state. Fifteen years later, Eamon de Valera kept open the option for subordinate legislatures. Article 15 of the Punri Act provides that the sole and exclusive power for making laws for the state is hereby vested in the Oireachtas. No other legislative authority has power to make laws for the state. But then it says, provision may however be made, may be made by law for the creation or recognition of subordinate legislatures and for the powers and functions of these legislatures. There's a clear difference between the two constitutions. Under Ireland's current constitution, a law may be passed by the Oireachtas to recognize an existing legislature as subordinate. At the time, this text allowed for the recognition of the Northern Ireland Parliament, which had been running for some 16 years when Bunriachna Éireann was ratified. The same clause could, however, be used to recognize the current Northern Ireland Assembly as a subordinate legislature. De Valera's constitution has proved robust and flexible, surprising many. It has become a constitution as ordinarily understood. The Oireachtas is not sovereign. The constitution protects popular sovereignty. Referendums are required to amend the constitution. Judicial review and presidential reference for judicial review have helped protect constitutional and human rights, both those that are explicit and those Americans call unenumerated. The Constitution has been sufficiently flexible to allow Articles 2 and 3 to be amended to reflect the principle of concurrent consent for Irish reunification, and to enable amendments, starting with the modification of Article 44 on religion, that reflect the country's thoroughgoing secularization, as well as its integration into the European Confederation. It is sufficiently flexible to allow for two different models of future reunification one with the continuing Northern Ireland Assembly, and one in which Northern Ireland is dissolved. It must, however, be radically amended or replaced if federation becomes the chosen model of, reu of reunification, an unlikely possibility, I believe. The Constitution's preamble, however, is not fit for purpose. It reads as sectarian whatever the drafting intent. Likewise, the provisions on declarations for officeholders, including the President's, need to be fully secularized. Its drafting spirit was patriarchal and regressive regarding women's rights. A full scan and deliberation over the Constitution, particularly its language provisions, is minimally necessary before the momentous and galvanizing prospects of reunification referendums, Kirka 2030. Comprehensive replacement, however, may not be required unless the model of reunification chosen is based on holding a constitutional convention elected by the entire people 
of the island. The other state created in 1922, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, is sovereign over Northern Ireland. It is sometimes inaccurately referred to as the British state in Northern Ireland because there is no good adjectival form for UK. Ukania and Ukanian, advanced by Tom Nairn, have no extensive followers. In 1922, the territorially reconstructed United Kingdom lost more of its sovereign territory, 22%, than Germany had at Versailles, 13%, a vivid testament to the failure to incorporate Ireland into British nation building. This downsizing under the pressure of ballots and armed insurrection caused no significant political aftershock within Great Britain. No institutional transformation occurred akin to France's reconstruction during withdrawal from Algeria. Any prospects of home rule all around or federalizing the UK died, surviving only in the round table group, a pan-dominion or a set of Commonwealth imperialists led by Lionel Curtis, who had been an advisor to Lloyd George during the making of the treaty and after. From the perspective of British political elites, especially the Conservatives, downsizing from Ireland, north and south, was almost a complete success. Ireland no longer sent over 100 MPs to the House of Commons. Tiresome Irish questions were removed from the Commons, aided by a Speaker's Convention blocking parliamentary questions and discussions on matters devolved to Northern Ireland. The Tories could also count on 10 to 12 UUP MPs at Westminster to take the Conservative whip until 1972, a phenomenon which concentrated Harold Wilson's mind when Labour won a House of Commons majority of four seats in 1964. Managing Ireland became largely a question of international relations, whereas Northern Ireland was delegated to a small number of officials in the Treasury and the Home Office. The removal of the Irish question from the Commons also unexpectedly facilitated the growth of Labour and the Conservatives at the expense of the Liberals. Class is the basis of British party politics. All else is embellishment and detail. So wrote a professor of politics in 1967. That illusion was easier to believe after 1945 and before the duopoly of Labour and Conservatives began to break down in the mid-1970s. At least Scotland and Wales were part of the embellishment and detail. Northern Ireland was not. It was not treated as part of British party politics. Its details did not fit class politics, even though its dominant party represented conservative British Protestant culture in nearly fossilized forms. Intellectual neglect within the British Academy mirrored the political neglect in Westminster and Whitehall and in the press and civil society. British imperial elites also quickly judged that partitioning Ireland had been a success, whence the confidence with which some of their officials advanced partition as a solution for mandate Palestine and so-called British India. After 1918 and 1945, the victors of two world wars saw no reason to replace their constitution, essentially the English constitution, with its core doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty. Later, the not-so-post-imperial political elite of Greater England found European integration, especially the European Union, a profound challenge. There they encountered a constitutionalized confederation in the making, 
rather than an international organization to be treated a la carte. We all know how that tension ended, or at least appears to have ended. Grafting the English Constitution onto the European Confederation eventually did not work. Although, ironically, the divorce took place after a referendum intended to resolve intra-elite disagreement among the Conservatives. 20 years ago, it had not been absurd to imagine the UK evolving in an informally quasi-federal manner within a confederalizing Europe. That vista, however, has gone like the snows of yesteryear. Until England, and I mean England, constitutionalizes in a conventional manner by removing sovereignty from its imperious parliament, it will remain an awkward partner to its domestic neighbors and its sovereign neighbors. Awkward is a polite adjective. Indeed, the dissolution of the two unions, that of Great Britain and that of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, may occur before the English determine to join the club of genuinely constitutionalized democracies. The rules for the dissolution of the union with Northern Ireland are agreed in a treaty. The rules for the other union are not. The current Conservative Prime Minister reserves the right to determine when the people of Scotland may next decide on their self-determination. Finally, the, the late John Kenneth Galbraith always said you should say finally to give hope to your audience. Uh, finally, we must learn from our constitutional experiences. 1922 was a bloody year throughout most of the island. Both emergent jurisdictions experienced civil war. Both initial constitutional orders were failures by the evaluative standards of constitutionality I have used here. We still live with the consequences. The compromises of 1937 and 1998 did not definitively settle the constitutional orders of the South and the North. The terms and conditions for future referendums on the possibility of reunification are specified in the 1998 agreement, though not with the detail many would like to see. They're also protected by two treaties. However, adequate constitutional preparation for the possibility of the referendums has not begun. The nature of the UK state and Northern Ireland's lack of statehood puts a particular onus on the Irish state to prepare for the possibility of reunification. The minimal statecraft required of this cohort of deputies and senators in the Oireachtas is to start considering the optimal constitutional accommodations that would provide a soft landing to the possible losers in the referendums. The losers could be Ulster Unionists, but they could also be Northern Nationalists, though they will be entitled to another referendum seven years later if the conditions are met again. I have been told that it is a bit rich for the Irish to demand that treaties be honored, given that the independence of Ireland was accomplished through unilateral amendment or repudiation of a treaty's articles. There is, however, an incomparable difference between voluntary treaties freely negotiated and ratified, and coerced treaties imposed by the threat of terrible and immediate war. Similar comparative condemnation should attach to insincere treaty making. Preserving constitutional order and avoiding any diminution in the protection of rights across the island is the immediate challenge faced by our politicians. Preparing all, south and north, for the possibility of reunification
so that it may occur as democratically, peaceably, and constitutionally as possible is the larger and more demanding challenge, both for this political class and for those who will follow them. Thank you.